I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You will also be able to access the references mentioned here. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Adam Gorin, child and adolescent psychoanalytic psychotherapist in the UK. He is the lead clinician at a child and adolescent mental health service in London, specifically concerned with fostered and adopted children, and those children who in the UK are referred to as looked after children, and in Australia as being in care. Adam specializes in working with traumatized adopted children and their families. He is also an essayist, painter, and printmaker, concerned with creatively traversing borders and boundaries. Welcome, Adam. I'd like to start by asking you what brought you into child and adolescent psychotherapy following what I believe were several years of working as an occupational therapist. First of all, Ruth, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for um, inviting me to join you. Um, I think uh, I always had an interest in children's psychological states, uh, their internal um, thinking processes, um, and that was part of the occupational therapy training to look at uh, psychological states in people as well as physical states. And so I soon joined a um, child and adolescent mental health unit uh, and was doing play therapy as an occupational therapist. Um, but I also worked in pediatrics and I was particularly interested in um, families where children had uh, long-term or permanent disabilities. And I saw it was very, very difficult for parents sometimes to come to terms with uh, their children's disabilities and uh, the need to work with those parents almost uh, in a process of um, mourning really for uh, the child they expected to have, uh, the gap between the child they had and the one they would like. And part of that was being realistic with them about what we could achieve regarding uh, amelioration of their physical disabilities. But I felt frustrated that I couldn't really address the emotional, if you like, the psychological aspects to the fullest degree that I would like. Um, healthcare being very separated into physical health and mental health. And so that really prompted me to think about training as a child psychotherapist. Oh, very interesting. Can you tell us about the service you lead now that is, I understand, concerned with children and, and adolescents who have experienced profound trauma before coming into foster or adoptive care? Sure. So I work in a small borough in uh, southeast London and 
it's part of th a three borough trust and the threshold for child and adolescent mental health services, as you might know, in the UK is uh, very high. So what I mean by that is that because of the demand on services and the lack of provision, uh, it would mean that the child and family would be in a high state of distress or, for example, uh, children might be suicidal or seriously self-harming in order to get into the service. So already some of the children that come to see us, the adopted children, the, the children who are looked after by the state, by the local authority, um, are in a state where the foster placement or the adoptive placement is often under threat um, of breaking down in some way. And um, that could be things like the child self-harming or violence between the child and the parent, uh, those kind of um, those kind of issues. And uh, so our job is really to sort of see if we can, in the first instance, stabilize the family situation. And then after that, start working with both children and parents. Of course, it's very complicated because uh, it depends on the situation with the adopters, the foster carers, how long these uh, difficulties have been going on whether, for example, the child comes as an adolescent or as a little child. Uh, it's also complicated by whether it's, uh, for example, what's called a kinship care arrangement, uh, where someone from the family is looking after the child. And sometimes you have inter, uh, intrafamilial conflict that complicates the picture. Uh, sometimes you have two children together in a placement, which complicates the issue. And I think we might talk about that a little later. So it's a very complex field, actually, and uh, it's a small service and there's a small number of us and we try our best to uh, provide a, a wide range of interventions. Can I ask how many people work in the service? So in our team, it's very small indeed. There's uh, two part-time workers um, and myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a caseload of around 90, 80 to 90 children goodness, at the moment. Goodness, that is a, mm. it's a pretty shocking sort of statistic, isn't it, really? Think about that. Yes, and it's better than other teams. So yeah. we have other teams, such as a generic team, where are, there are hundreds of um, mm. um, um, children trying to get a service, and there are sometimes up to um, 18 months, two years waiting for a service yeah. for some of these extreme situations. It's it's something that perhaps we need to devert a, a completely different podcast on because it is a serious problem everywhere. Um, we've discussed a view, I, I think we both share, that conventional child psychotherapy in what you call the boundary space of the consulting room for severely traumatized children and adolescents with the primary focus being on the child and adolescent has some limitations. Can you tell us why this might be the case? Um, I think that what I uh, found when I started my uh, career uh, post-qualification as a child psychotherapist was that uh, some of the children that came to see me were in such high states of anxiety that it was very difficult actually to engage them in any thinking process at all. And of course, I wrote a, 
a paper on this uh, called something else in child psychotherapy. And I was raking my brain and trying to work out what is it that I needed to do in order to create something that resembled uh, the idea of child psychotherapy. And uh, I think someone, a parent saved me one day by insisting she came into the room um, and stay with her child. She asked me to do uh, an intervention called um, Theraplay, which I wasn't qualified in. And I made that clear, but she insisted that she did come into the room and uh, she really forwarded my way of working tremendously because having the parent in the room changed the whole intervention entirely. That child was more calmed in that um, state, um, in that situation. And uh, the parent also felt that their experience of the child was seen from the inside uh, and so validated and affirmed. And we both had to muck in together to try and work out how we could calm, th calm this child. So I, I realized after that, that there was something actually in uh, removing children who have been removed from their birth parents in a therapeutic situation might be problematic. And so I began to think that actually, perhaps parents should be in uh, the work rather than outside of it. And that um, actually removing them was actually increasing their anxiety. And so I started bringing parents into the work and it made a big difference. And would that include a, a biological, that's biological parents as well as foster parents, adoptive parents? I think that my basic principle is how does a child view their experience of coming to a center and coming to a room with a stranger? And I would say the only impediment to having a carer in the room is if the level of maltreatment meant that the distress would be higher with the parent in, or the carer in the room than it would with having them out. And even in that situation, I would think of it as a temporary separation until both parent and child could have work uh, so they weren't so triggered by each other. But I would say that even, yes, it, when it's the case of birth family, if it's going to facilitate the child's um, therapeutic process, then I would, I would recommend having them there at least part of the time. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for clarifying that. I think that also links with the next, my next question or comment, which is, which is you've already referred to your very interesting paper. Um, I think it was called something else. That's right. Uh, about else. your therapeutic approach, and and that's a paper published in the Journal of Child Psychotherapy, in which you describe how the role of the therapist to bear the unbearable, the nameless dread mainly expressed verbally is simply not enough. Since as you put it, um, these children and adolescents are gripped by a crippling fear and the compulsion to repeat their trauma and perhaps at times to ruin any achievement. And this tells us, doesn't it, that the capacity to achieve insight into why we behave the way we do requires an ability to step outside of ourselves and look at ourselves. And that's very hard to do when you feel your emotional survival is hanging by a thread, which is as the way you've described some of the children and young people you see in your service. 
Absolutely. So if we think of the sort of old Freudian idea of analysis, um, on, on which I think in a way child psychotherapy or child psychoanalytic therapy was built, it's uh, of a person who's able to tolerate lying down on a couch whilst uh, someone helps them um, to understand their um, experiences, thoughts, their past, and uh, they're able to enter a kind of reverie of what's called free association, where they allow anything to come to mind. Uh, e even, even for a child lying down in front of a strange adult, um, a child who's been traumatized or neglected in their early years could, could feel very, very dangerous. So in that moment, they're not able to see the therapist as a benign adult there to help them. They are, it, it's what I called the collapse of the past and the into the present. So children are still so haunted in their bodies and their minds by the things that have happened to them early on in their lives that their experience uh, is recreated in the here and now. They reenact their trauma. It's not a conscious process. It's a sort of unconscious, implicit process caught in what's called sort of procedural uh, memory. And what that means is that they can be extremely frightened just being in a room with a stranger. And so it, it raises questions about uh, what we're supposed to do with that. We, we understand it well as annihilatory anxiety or collapse or uh, fragmentation. Those are the kinds of words we use um, in psychoanalysis. But actually what to do about those states is another very, very important question. How do you make a child who feels that frightened feel safe? Uh, yes. Absolutely. And I suppose linking in with that, you, you're emphatic about the need for these children and perhaps all children to be seen within a wider systemic concept, context. And so we can't care for traumatized children and adolescents if we don't attend to the emotional, social, relational and cultural word, world in which they find themselves. Can you describe how you address the systemic work? Yes, so I think the important thing uh, with, for example, with a, a foster child is uh, they're still a ward of the state. They're, the state is still their legal guardian. So in effect, the foster carer could be pitching up with the child wanting therapy, uh, but there are other players in, in the process. That child is part of a system um, that's, that's put them there. And uh, so there are other interests um, out there and other processes out there, other political, social, economic processes. So, for example, a social work system might be under tremendous strain. So capacity to think about the child's inner world, their experience of being in care, their experience, for example, of contact with a birth parent if they're with a foster carer might be quite limited. And so that impacts the foster carer and it impacts the child because they may not, for example, um, be able to think about how to prepare a, a foster child for contact with their birth parent. There may not be resources to prepare the birth parent for contact with the child. And so you have a risk of the child being re-traumatized in those situations and uh, the foster carer being um, stressed or distressed by those situations. 
So if you begin to think of it in the wider context, you begin to understand that in order to address stress in the child, you need to address the stress in the system. And um, that doesn't only include stress as a, cause of, as a result of deprivation of resources, for example, in the social care system. It's also transgenerational stress caused by um, what socioeconomic class you come from. Uh, whether you're an immigrant or a refugee, uh, whether you've um, experienced or been victim of transgenerational um, racism or uh, institutional racism, all of those uh, things need to be factored into um, how a child presents in the room, really. Absolutely. I was just thinking that one of the sorrowful truths for children who are looked after or in care or who cannot remain with their birth families is that they often end up doubly or trebly deprived and abused within the system that has been set up ostensibly to help them and i think you describe that as children uh, that often these children become objectified and there appears to be a profound failure on the part of the state to care for these children how do you see this affecting children and young people and how can one sort of move from I suppose it raises the question of whether one can move as a psychotherapist um, from a, a purely therapeutic position to the position of advocacy for children. Mm -hmm. I suppose uh, in order to in order to think that one has a role as a child psychotherapist in that, it needs to reframe the whole question of what what it is that makes people behave badly when they want to normally do good. And it really goes back to the other question that you were asking earlier about, you know, where people are hanging by a thread and um, feeling in threat states. So I suppose we have to ask ourselves the question, if people are behaving badly or they're um, withdrawing from care, what threat state do they, did they feel themselves under? I think that's fundamental. So, and that applies to, whole, to the whole system. So as I've described in answering your last question, you may have social workers who are under tremendous pressure. So how would you as a psychotherapist intervene in that situation in order to help the child? And um, advocacy could be a matter of trying to increase a space for thinking in the, in the wider system. But it's also, as I've said before, if you're in a threat state, your thinking capacity is severely reduced. So something about care actions to various parties, um, sort of extending compassion instead of criticizing the system, uh, which is already undermined, try and find a way to make alliances, try and find a way to um, generate a sense that other people within the system are cared for, uh, increase their experience of being cared for so that they're uh, more able to do the same for um, their wards for the foster carers and the children that they're looking after. But having said all of that, there are points in which um, there's real injustice that takes place, as you've sort of um, hinted in your question, where, uh, where I've seen foster carers who, whose role or whose voice has been un undermined because the threat state is uh, so extreme in the system. Uh, that they're seen as somehow a hostile force or enemy to their own employers. Um, and 
in that case, I think there is a point at which, uh, and the same can happen in schools, for example, where they're under so much pressure that they'd rather exclude, permanently exclude the child or um, victimize the child, because it's easier to do that than to think about, about the causes of the child's behavior. And I suppose in those circumstances, we do, I believe, need to come to the child and family's defense. We do need to speak up for, um, for the vulnerable, for um, people who don't have a voice or have a less of a voice than we do. And I think as child psychotherapists, as professionals in the system, we have quite a lot of power and agency in those situations. My experience is exercising that agency, even if that it doesn't lead to a successful outcome, it definitely communicates to the child and to the family that you're uh, rooting for them. You might be the first person who's actually come along and said, you know, you're right. And they aren't telling the truth about you. And um, this isn't right the way you're, you've been treated. And I think that can be a very, very powerful thing to do, more powerful than sometimes than any interpretation you might make in the room that helps a child understand themselves. Absolutely. But I think you make a very important point about how there needs to be care within the system and there needs to be compassion for the carers. And sometimes there needs to be a sort of therapeutic support for them as well. I mean, there's just focusing perhaps a little bit on some of the difficulties. There's, of course, the further problem of lack of continuity of care where workers come and go and become burnt out because they're not being looked after themselves. So the systemic abuse affects both the clients and their carers. And then there's also the extraordinary notion of a cutoff point for children in the care system, which ends at the age of 18, when they are seemingly thrown out of the system and must fend for themselves. I understand that in the UK, this has now been extended to the age of 25, but it really does highlight the terrifying inequity in society about the treatment of young people. I was thinking particularly at the moment of how young people come and go at home. You know, they, they, they can't afford to live outside of home these days. I mean, it's not that easy to rent or certainly to buy. So they may have to stay within the family home for so much longer. But these children, the children you deal with, they don't have the luxury of being able to do that. Mm. I think they don't have the luxury, um, but um, more than that, I think that there's this kind of misconception of um, what an adult and what a child is. So, you know, uh, on the one hand, I think sometimes, and this is sort of a new thought that I'm having, we almost partition adolescence off as something separate, as different, you know, and uh, it allows us to, in a way, objectify adolescence. So we never ask the question, um, is, is, is it somehow disillusioning this whole educational process, you know, where you're in a way um, forcing children into unpaid labor, you know, uh, which you tell them is for their long-term benefit um, because they'll grow up and uh, make good citizens in society. And yet there's disillusionment in that process because what, what kind of, what, you know, what kind of world are they, being raised in for, if you like. So I think that that that's a that's a kind of new question that I have about um, objectifying children, not hearing them as little human beings, um, and validating their voice 
outside of this sort of stereotype, if you like, of, 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 of childhood. But I also think that it works the other way that children are expected to also uh, be grown-ups the, at, the, at the age of 16 or 17 or 18, because there's a, some kind of abstract notion uh, which is sort of enshrined in law that you're legally this or you're legally that. You can legally have sex at this age or you can um, uh, get married or you, or you can or you're an adult in so many ways. You vote at a certain age. And I think that um, it's a little bit too convenient in that system to just uh, accept that ch children who have been severely traumatized and often are much younger emotionally um, than their chronological age um, are ready for adulthood and they're certainly not ready for adulthood Absolutely. because so many children that we uh, uh, who have had a fairly uh, adaptive normal if you like um, upbringing are not ready for adulthood but it is convenient in the sense that it obviously costs the state a huge amount of money uh, to uh, raise children in foster care and to support adoptive families. Um, yeah. you've, you've mentioned quite specific levels of trauma that these children and young people experience with respect to um, race, class and ethnicity. And I, I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. Um, yes, I think it's sort of something that goes under the radar because it's so hard um, to get a grasp of. But I think that if, if you, it's very hard to describe it actually, because um, that sense of not having a valid uh, sense of place in the world. Uh, yeah, I, I would say, for example, if someone has come to this country, well, we've got a really good example, haven't we, with the Windrush scandal where um, young adults with children came to this country in the 50s and 60s uh, from uh, Jamaica and other places in the Caribbean and um, to the what they call the mother country. And uh, they thought that they were coming uh, to be welcomed with open arms and uh, found that uh, they were tr treated worse than second-class citizens. And that sense of being disenfranchised from a legitimate place or space or identity, I think eats into the core of a person. And what it, uh, what it does is it uh, takes away their sense of rights for themselves. And um, it also, if you like, exaggerates the sense in which one has to sort of fit in with someone else's perspective. In, what I've sort of called in, in a paper pathological accommodation. And as I say, it's really difficult to talk about because it just eat, it's in so ingra ingrained in the fabric of society that it may not even ha have a tangible point that we could refer to, but it's definitely there and needs our really hard work to address it. It, it is, it is. It's, on, it's, it's an ongoing issue, isn't it? Um, you make some important observations about what you describe as trauma-bonded children, for example, who as siblings enter into foster or adoptive care, 
Um, and the view from the services that have arranged these place, placements perceive them as a satisfactory and positive outcome for the children. But the children or adolescents nevertheless experience a sense of loss and ruptured separation from their traumatizing birth parents. Is, is that correct? I mean, this is a very complex situation. So I just wonder if you could describe what might be happening there. Yeah, so I think the role of social work in in sort of a, a Western context is 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 like in a way trying to play God. You know, you're 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 making decisions about what is a family for a child, and it, it's absolutely profound because attachment is at the core of our sense of belonging and our sense of identity. And so uh, I think that that's underestimated the kind of impact of decision-making um, on the person making the decision on the social system, on social care, on the social worker. And that may also feed into understanding why this objectification process takes place. Uh, but there are then I think two really, really powerful fantasies. Actually, there are three really, really powerful fantasies. Um, one is that in order to sort of, I think it's connected with a sense of unconscious guilt by the system, um, in order to assuage that sense of guilt and shame of removing a child from um, their birth parents, there's this fantasy that if you place them in a good enough home, they'll be fine, you know, adopted home, they'll be fine. All you need to do is love the children up and they'll, 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 they'll be fine. Um, there's another one, which is that even if we think that removing children was a good idea. I've heard it said that um, a core principle is to return children to birth parents. And I've heard it a core principle that children should be kept together if at all possible. And I think that making those core principles is problematic and it undermines looking at those cases on a case by case basis. Because in terms of having two children, two siblings from the same birth family together in, for example, a foster placement or an, adopt an adoptive placement, I think if, you, if those children have gone through severe trauma with each other um, and are not able to relate to each other in a um, pro-social way, they're not able to relate in any kind of loving way, but they use each other instrumentally and they trigger each other into trauma. Um, there is a question about whether they should be together. So there needs to be a really, really thorough assessment of siblings to see how they're going to possibly be together. I mean, it, within it's a very, you raise a very interesting point because that's something that I've heard about previously. And I think it comes about because there's a misunderstanding about the nature of attachment. Mm -hmm that sometimes it's not just social workers, but it's perhaps the system believes that the, the children, that attachment is about children being attached to each other, that the sibling attachment is the, is the key attachment. And they don't seem to understand that the key attachment is to the parent, that it's about the child and the parent, and or it's about a generalization of, of attachment, of the attachment process. And I think there's a, there's, there's a mistake in that. I think that the, I think it starts with a mistake and a misunderstanding about the very nature of attachment, and I think it's done with goodwill, but it it fails to understand the child's connection 
in fact, with their parents, however abusing and difficult and challenging. And, and so it seems to fit with, with what you're saying about why it, why it often may fail. Yes, um, I, think, I think though that uh, returning to the question about uh, si siblings' experience of, of being in care, so they may be taken into an emergency respite care situation and then moved on to another carer and another carer. What, what may happen is, for example, if they come to adoption at the age of four or five and six, say five and six, each of them, uh, actually they're each other's only consistent attachment figure over that period. So um, they represent each to each other well, they are to each other the, the, the closest bond, but they also represent that parental attachment because they're a reminder of the birth family they've come from. So I think it, it, it's quite complicated in a way. Uh, yes, that, 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 that complicates things. But I do think you're absolutely right. It's sometimes the attachment between children um, blurs the picture of the wider attachment or the more important attachment to the parent. I think the difficulty is sometimes that children's attachments are so disorganized to adults because of the fear that they have about adults um, that not enough work is done to think about how to repair that. I think, yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, that, that goes back to the, um, the, the core principles about attachment processes, processes. And, and, the, and the disorganization of that attachment. Um, so clearly that is something that is, is, has a major impact. I, I wonder if you could say something a bit more about your understanding of, of, of trauma creating a radical shift in your clinical practice. You know, is there any one thing, apart from seeing the, uh, the, the parent with the child, would there be any other area that you think you, you would be shifting, um, there'd be a radical shift in your clinical practice? Um, I think that although we've been talking about the attachment relationship, I've also noticed that if we think about threat states and people in threat states, institutions in threat states, uh, which is something that I've been very interested in for quite some time, I've noticed that there are certain people um, who find it very, very difficult to come out of a threat state. And that may be because uh, of the longevity of the threat that they've been under and the severity of the threat that they've been under. That's one element. But I'm beginning to see and uh, acknowledge with parents that there are some children who uh, maybe for constitutional reasons, when you match their, if you like, their genetic profile or character or whatever you call it, with that experience, they find it much harder than other children. And you can see differences between siblings. For example, one sibling being naturally more capable of being pro-social than another. And so there are situations in which um, long-term therapy has been undertaken, intensive therapy with a child, and uh, really had very little impact on that child's behavior in the long term. It, it may have been ameliorative um, for some period, 
but in the long term it hasn't changed their behavior and i think we perhaps in a radical way need to acknowledge that some children may be disabled in the way that some children are physically disabled and so it's not necessarily about making them better but it's about how to contain that disability what adaptations need to be put in place to make it bearable or manageable for the parent uh, whether it's a foster parent or adoptive parent uh, and I think that I found that acknowledging that with parents has been a huge relief. I think that makes a lot of sense and, and it links in a way with a final question which is that in your paper you refer to the clinical and research evidence that enables us to acknowledge the neurophysiological impact of trauma and, and as you say how threat <clears throat> and early traumatic experience wreaks havoc with the infant and young child's regulatory systems located as they are within the autonomic brain body function. And you refer to the seminal work of Alan Shaw and Bessel van der Kolk, who described, and Bessel van der Kolk particularly describes the body holding the memory of trauma. And I just wondered, given your previous experience as an occupational therapist, do you find that there are useful techniques you can apply with respect to your current clinical work? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, when children are really uh, scared, there's so many different things that you can do to help them. So, for example, you might not see them in the clinic at all. You might see them at home because that's the safest space for them. Um, so you might I see a child sitting at the kitchen table every week. Um, I think uh, one of the core things that I learned uh, post-qualification is to resource the child physiologically. So I always say, particularly on first sessions to carers and parents, what, what, what could they bring along that would give them comfort? I don't just mean a teddy bear, I mean, what food and drink would they like during the session? These things really matter when you need to be helped to regulate yourself physically. I think there are a lot of body things that one can do, but I always take my lead from parents and carers. They often know the physical things that children need to do, whether it's scrunch themselves up in a corner, um, be in somewhere dark, lie on their tummies, um, swing about on something, be outside of the room. So I take my cue from them about what kind of things help them to feel calm in themselves. Um, obviously, like I said, the presence of the carer matters. Uh, uh, allowing or encouraging self-soothing behaviors. I think structuring the session sometimes to make it more predictable. So it's not just a free form play area, but you're doing something that is a give and take or, or has some predictability to it. Because there's little inference making machines, um, the, the, the capacity of these very frightened children to infer what, what's actually gonna, really gonna happen is very, very poor. So bringing in some structure to make it predictable can really, really help. Uh, I think there is a lot of new research into something, something called sensory attachment work, which is being developed by occupational therapists. And I think that's a really fruitful line of investigation and something we should be actively involved in ourselves as psychotherapists. So th there's that as well. Um, but I, I, I think I've developed um, something around using humor and you and using rough and tumble where children um, initiate that 
um, intervention because these are what I call benign violations. So what's happening is that although the child is trying to recreate a scenario, if you like, of potential conflict, as jokes are, they're edgy, um, they're demanding, they're challenging, and so is rough and tumble. The role of the therapist in a very kind of measured, structured way is to try and convert that into something that you can um, be joyous about or feel good about or share a laugh about. And my experience is uh, where that's really well structured and involves the parent, it can really work well. So I've done quite a lot of rough and tumble kind of interventions uh, with children uh, that allow uh, later on in a session, for example, to talk about things. But it's about that sort of physicality, the safety and physicality, the sense um, that the body can be a joyous thing, the sense that a relationship can be a joyous thing. That, that's absolutely key. So it's a kind of full body, if you like, mind uh, relational experience that I'm promoting. That sounds, that sounds terrific, Adam. So thank you so very much. And, you know, all the very best with your work. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much for inviting me, Ruth. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.